There's a lot of people who are struggling right now who had businesses that relied on in-person interactions, like whether it was a fitness instructor going to teach a class at a studio or any of the other areas that were impacted. And there had to be a better way for people to come together and have a virtual experience, but then also help those fitness instructors, those creators make money. And so we saw someone online and she had like a huge following. I think she had like 20 some odd thousand Instagram followers. And she had set up this business where she was teaching fitness classes on Zoom, but she was kind of managing the whole process super manually. And she was getting signups and like DMs and text messages and emails. And she was getting payments through like Venmo and PayPal. And the whole thing was super manual. And we said like, hey, let us like let us build something for you quickly that'll help you scale it. And so she went from teaching classes that didn't have that many people in it to one night in the first week teaching a Zoom fitness class with a thousand people in it where she charged five bucks a head. And it was a 30 minute class and uh, she made $5,000 in 30 minutes. And so from that moment, we said like, whoa, there's something here and we can help people build virtual businesses that are, are really big. And then also in a lot of ways, like better than the businesses that they were in before. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort. I have Tomas Hoyos with me today, who is the founder and CEO of AirSubs. We had a great discussion today about um, how AirSubs got started. He actually started another business, a venture-based business in the healthcare space, Voro, that was impacted dramatically by the pandemic. And he made a pivot in the middle of the pandemic and created a whole new company that is basically becoming the Shopify for the creator economy. With over 50 million creators today and that growing quickly, uh, they're capturing a huge opportunity, and it's been really cool to watch that business grow over the last year. And so today we talk about the early days of, of building that healthcare company, but then how that transferred into AirSubs today and how he sees the future of creators um, and the world that we're going to live in going forward. So thank you for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoy. Tomas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, I'm excited about today. Let's just start with kind of your story growing up and kind of what led you to what you're doing today. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I guess my story starts in Venezuela, where I was born. Um, our, our family moved to the U.S. when I was around five years old. And my family's from all over the place. I have two older brothers who were born in Argentina. My mom was born in Cuba. My dad was born in Italy. But I grew up for the most part in the U.S. and and we lived in a suburb of New York City. We have a a big extended family, so I spent a lot of time with them growing up. Uh, I read a lot of books, played a bunch of sports. Um, and I, I went up to Harvard for college. After that, I went into finance and investing, and I spent a few years at a private equity fund where I focused on investing in healthcare businesses. And I left there to start a consumer healthcare company. And that was my first company. And it's a mission that's super important to me. 
Um, and in the beginning of the pandemic, that business ran into some headwinds and we ended up launching a couple side projects and one of them got a bunch of traction and kind of took off and we ended up pivoting and we're now building that business full time. Subs, It's in the passion economy. I love it. Before we dive into that, I've never met somebody that's from Venezuela. Did, were you born there and grew up there? Yeah, so we lived there until I was like five years old, and then we came back. So, like the majority of my childhood was here in the here in the U.S. But you know, spent the first few years there for sure. Can you just speak just a little bit on the way we think about Venezuela today? Is you know, it's a tough tough place to be. Was it that way when you grew up, or has it gotten worse since you left? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when I was there, there were two military coups. And so like to a certain extent, the country has always had a little bit of instability, but I think that it, it has gotten worse over time with a different array of, uh, of people in charge. And it, you know, there's no question that the, the country is, is struggling um, a lot. And while I don't have a, a ton of family there, I do stay close to it. Uh, one of our engineers, one of our employees is actually based in Venezuela. And so um, that kind of helps me keep my fingers on the pulse of of what's going on. You know, it is a shame because it's such an amazing country with amazing people who uh, who, who are definitely struggling. Man, I can't imagine. Um, well, we met when you were launching your business, Voro, which is the consumer healthcare company you were mentioning. And I remember in our cup, first couple calls um, how important the mission of that was to you. So maybe just a little bit on kind of the inspiration behind Voro, why you launched it and, and what it is. Yeah, definitely. So I guess like first, Voro is a healthcare social network where people share doctor recommendations with their friends uh, and research doctors and book doctor appointments. And so our, our mission was really focused on bringing trust and data to healthcare so people could make better health decisions. Uh, and so we really wanted to make it easy to get advice you trust from people you know, and then also look at some objective data um, so you can make more informed decisions that lead to better health outcomes. And so everyone's kind of been there where you need to find a doctor for something important, whether it's for yourself or someone you care about, and you don't know who to trust. And um, it can be really hard to pick someone or find someone. And it's just useful to connect with other people you know who've been through something similar to get an answer. And then you also want that doctor to be objectively good because you care about the outcome. And so you definitely want to sanity check it with some objective information. And so, you know, the idea for Voro was really inspired by personal experience. So I, I kind of saw this problem play out firsthand um, with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And I kind of saw the power of connecting with other people um, in and around healthcare in a social way and then using data to, to make good decisions. So my girlfriend was diagnosed with a genetic condition uh, called BRCA. And so it's a gene marker that puts you at a higher risk of getting breast cancer. And so with her version of BRCA, you have like a 70 to 80% chance of getting breast cancer. And the recommended course of treatment is to get a preventative double mastectomy, which is obviously like a, a bit of really scary information. Um, and so when she first got this diagnosis, um, she had a bunch of stuff to learn. She had a ton of questions and the, the stakes were really high. 
And so she just found it incredibly useful to connect with other women who had been through something similar, you know, whether it was family members or friends or forums online or Facebook groups to talk about what people had been through and learn from their experience and figure out what our options were and what the drawbacks were of different approaches and like what were the like the real lived experiences of people who had been through something similar. And she also needed to find a doctor and a surgeon. So she got recommendations from people she knew. And then, you know, we checked those recommendations against some publicly available data, you know, whether it's healthcare quality of institutions or specific providers. A lot of times, uh, frequency of surgery is sort of a great predictor of whether uh, a doctor is going to be good. And then some other sort of like risk-adjusted outcome measures. And so we kind of had information from someone um, that she that she trusted, and then also some objective data. And she ended up finding a doctor. Um, everything went really great, and she's doing super well. And you know, we both felt really lucky, but also that it should have been easier. Uh, and that there's so many people in the country and around the world who are faced with like a really scary healthcare problem and don't really know where to start. And so. That was kind of the impetus to to set out and build sort of this like healthcare social network and marketplace. And then the other premise of the business was that a huge chunk of healthcare spending is wasted because people make ineffective uh, medical decisions. So 30% of all healthcare spending is wasted on low quality or unnecessary medical care to the tune of like hundreds of billions of dollars. And so if we could make a dent in that healthcare spending by powering some of these better healthcare decisions where there also is trust and kind of pairing it with a business model that aligns incentives and is a win-win-win, then you know that that's sort of what we wanted to what we wanted to build. And that's the impetus behind Boro. And as all that was going on, and I'm glad to hear that um, your wife had a successful outcome. I can't imagine what it was like to go through that. As all that's going on, are you still at the PE fund investing in healthcare? And then kind of at what point was it like, all right, I'm, I'm going all in on this idea? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing where we sort of had this idea, we're thinking about it, and we're working on it nights and weekends. And it gets to the point where you just feel yourself being pulled towards something. And if it's the thing that you're thinking about, like in in all of your spare time, then like it, you just know that you should be doing it like full bore, and so that was sort of one of the one of the driving factors to to push and and go start it. Did you bring on a a co founder early on, or were you just kind of building it solo? Yeah, no. So I I started it with my co founder Drew, um, who's one of my good friends. I actually grew up across the street from him, and he kind of has his own his own story about how this has touched his life. And I think we're not dissimilar from a lot of people who started businesses in healthcare where they go through something that's really difficult as a consumer and then think to themselves like, hey, there's got to be a better way to, to do this. Yep. Okay. So you you get going, you raise venture capital. That's how we met, got to invest in Voro. And then you're taking off. And I think you had about a year before the pandemic hit. The pandemic hits and and what happens? Why did the business suffer from the pandemic? And we'll get into what happened after that. 
Yeah. So, so we had a bunch of traction, we raised some money um, and then the pandemic happens and the company is sort of deeply affected by it. So like as an example, our monthly active users decreased by like 70%. And so what was really driving that is that uh, people were deferring non-essential medical care. So they just like weren't looking for doctors unless they have COVID. And if they had COVID, they were sort of rushing to the hospital. So you kind of saw a really deep disruption in healthcare and in how healthcare was delivered. And we saw in some of our bigger markets like New York City, for example, doctors were basically just shuttering their offices um, and not seeing patients and people were sort of foregoing medical care. So that was kind of like the driving factor of what happened to the business. And, and we knew that the business would bounce back because there's still like a huge demand for people making better health decisions and like wanting advice from people they trust. But as a company, we're pre-revenue and monetization sort of a ways off and, and we'd be in trouble if we didn't do anything. And so, you know, we talked to one of our investors, uh, Mike Maples, who encouraged us to test out some some different ideas. I remember he he had a a call with a bunch of different founders, just kind of checking in to see how we were doing. This was in March, like as sort of the world had just been flipped upside down and, and it felt like the world was on fire. And there was a bunch of people on that call. Um, uh, one of them was was Abe Shafty, who from IRL, who who I know you had on the pod recently, who's awesome. That was a great episode. Um, he just sort of like encouraged people to take a step back and understand that this would sort of be like a much more durable shift than anyone had really anticipated, um, and to take steps to test things out or at least think about things differently. Because I, I know that there was a lot of people at the time in March who were saying. Hey, the world's going to flip back to normal in June, um, and Mike was kind of pressing it to say, like, "Hey, things are going to be very different for the foreseeable future." So think about kind of like position the business in such a way that you're able to sort of ride out this storm. And so one of the things we did is we took a couple of days and just decided to launch some different things, basically like get back to our roots and like build a few products and launch them. And we wanted to pick products that were uniquely enabled by the pandemic, and so we built a prototype of an idea in like 72 hours. We, we, we time boxed it and gave ourselves a short period of time and decided to launch it. And then in the first week, we helped someone earn over $60,000. And so we said like, hey, wait a second, there is something here. Um, and so I'll, I'll tell you like a little bit about, about that person and like what we helped them do. So like right in March, as the world is flipped upside down, a lot of people were stuck at home. They couldn't physically go into work. Like if you go on Instagram, you'd see all these fitness instructors going live in their Instagram story, and they'd say something like, um, "You know, hey, I'm I'm so excited that we're going to do a workout class here on Instagram Live. I'm so bummed that I can't see all of your faces, but I'm glad that we're getting together and doing something normal. Hey, this has been a really hard week for me. Like I just got furloughed from my job, so." Um, in addition to like doing this class together, if you're willing and able, uh, why don't you hit me with a, a donation? Uh, here's my Venmo handle. And so we we saw that and we kind of figured like there's a lot of people who are struggling right now who had businesses that relied on in-person interactions, like whether it was a fitness instructor going to teach a class at a studio or any of the other areas that were impacted. And there had to be a better way for people to come together and have a virtual experience, but then also help those fitness instructors, those creators make money. And so we saw someone online and she didn't have like a huge following. I think she had like 20 some odd thousand Instagram followers. 
And she had set up this business where she was teaching fitness classes on Zoom, but she was kind of managing the whole process super manually. And she was getting signups and like DMs and text messages and emails. And she was getting payments through like Venmo and PayPal. And the whole thing was super manual. And we said, like, hey, let us like let us build something for you quickly that'll help you scale it. And so she went from teaching classes that didn't have that many people in it to one night um, in the first week teaching a Zoom fitness class with a thousand people in it, where she charged five bucks a head, and it was a thirty minute class, and uh, she made five thousand dollars in thirty minutes. And so you know, from that moment, we said like, whoa, there's something here. And we can help people build virtual businesses um, that are are really big, and then also in a lot of ways, like better than the businesses that they were in before. So, do you think of Air Subs kind of as like a Shopify for the creator world or the influencer world, or how do, how do you describe it? Yeah, exactly. So we're building like the business infrastructure for the world of of creators. And at, at, a, at a simple level, we make it easy to teach what you love and earn money. So most of our customers are creators who are using our subs to launch online schools and host virtual classes and events. And so an example would be fitness instructors who are teaching workout classes or food bloggers who are teaching cooking classes or meditation teachers who are teaching meditation classes. And AirSubs, is, it's a tool that streamlines all the administrative work so you can focus on doing what you love uh, and earning money. And then we also make it really easy to generate recurring revenue through memberships. And so we're kind of combining the virtual world with virtual events with a subscription business model um, that's powering um, the, these SaaS businesses for creators. And so like one question is, like, why now? So like, why is this the right time for a business like this? And obviously, it's set against the backdrop of the pandemic, you know, like a once in a lifetime event that changes everything about our lives and how we live and how we work and who we see and honestly, like who we are and what's important to us. But it also has this huge impact on the economy with some some clear winners and losers. And whole industries are flipped upside down, like fitness specifically, there's a half million fitness professionals in the country. And over 50% of them are furloughed or laid off between March, April, and May. And so if you put yourself in their shoes, you have the rug pulled out from under you. And whether it's fitness or other areas, like people in different segments of the economy have to pivot quickly to put food on the table. And at the same time, it's never been cheaper to start a company. You have tools to build a website or an e-com store um, or accept payments, connect with people online in a way that you've never had before. It's just never been cheaper or easier to start a company. Um, and you can also build an audience and get distribution like oftentimes before you actually have a product. Like You can get people to follow you on, on Instagram by delivering some kind of content that they really like or build up an email list. And so we're seeing this like mass decentralization of the economy where people are starting companies themselves and are able to create this huge leverage where the company is just one person, it's them, they're a creator, uh, and they're doing something that they love, and then they're making a living on it. And, and this is really like the birth of the creator economy or the passion economy, where you can do what you love and make a living. Uh, and so this is a, it's a big market and it's growing quickly. By some counts, there's like 50 million creators in the world today. And it's not hard to see how that'll grow like tenfold in short order. And so if you think about it, like every in-person experience you had or service that you paid for is going to have a digital equivalent. 
So that thing that you went to in person, you'll be able to do in a digital way and, and you were forced to do in a digital way during the pandemic. And that's a huge opportunity. And you're also seeing kind of this larger shift towards SaaS as a business model where you know, you're offering maybe a similar service, but you're pricing it in a different way that's just better for your business. And so it's kind of like a constellation of factors that make it a great time to start a company like this. And, and really, like the pandemic in a lot of ways has accelerated a bunch of shifts that were already happening, but pulled them forward by 10 years. It is incredible, you know, the spotlight that's been put on creators and and the ability to, you know, earn income in ways that we didn't think before. I want to talk more about the creator world and I have a bunch of questions, but before we get there, there's just a couple of things you said at the beginning that I just think are interesting. You said you got on a call with Mike Maples and he just kind of said like test out some different ideas. Was he kind of the encourager to say like you know, test out anything, look at the world and it might not have anything to do with what you were doing before, but, but test it out. That's just kind of an interesting comment. You would think a lot of people would, you know, either tell you to double down or find something similar to what you were doing. Like, how did he kind of, did he, that give you confidence to just go test out anything? Yeah. I mean, first he's just like an, an awesome guy and like a huge supporter of us and, and the business. And, you know, I think like when, when you're thinking about what you're looking for an investor, like someone with conviction and like with a lot of integrity, even when things aren't going great, like that's really what you want. And, you know, I think the other part of it is that he's probably seen some really successful pivots. So uh, like, I think he's, he was one of the first investors in Twitter, which was like a a pivot from Odeo and like same kind of story with Twitch and to a lesser extent, but still true Lyft. So he's kind of like seen these stories, but he's just like a really cool customer. And yeah, I think that was that was part of it. I think we realized that we definitely like had to test some different things out um, just because of the new reality of, of the world that we were in. But for sure, like you know, that kind of support is is huge um, from people who who put a you know who are betting on you. And it's like you don't really forget the people who bet on you early, and also the people like who don't bail when things are going hard or when there's some kind of a dislocation or disruption. And so did, was your kind of mandate to the team, like, hey, let's spend the next couple of weeks just, you know, reading, looking at everything going on and, you know, everybody bring your best idea to the table. You mentioned that 72 hour time box. Like how long did it take you to get to the air subs kind of idea after that call? Yeah, well, I think we had sort of been like seeing stuff happen in real time and we're like kicking around ideas, but like from concept to building to launching was like just a couple days. Like it was, we basically said, you know, let's build some stuff that we think um, is, is kind of uniquely enabled by the pandemic and then get it into the market so that it's actually helping people and solving a problem. Um, and then we saw that that was sort of like the clear winner of the things that we, that we launched. And in that 72 hours, are you building like on a, like basically with no code or are you coding it all out? Yeah, so uh, it was it was like a great lesson in the virtue of no code. So we hacked together a bunch of different tools, and we we used uh, like Webflow, um, and then had like a couple of other APIs that we plugged into it um, to enable things like payment and and scheduling and Zoom and that kind of stuff. So it was like it was definitely uh, launch it quick and dirty, which was like a, a great forcing function, and honestly is what made it successful. Yep. And then that first customer you said was just somebody that you had kind of been 
somebody had been following on social media and y'all just reached out to him with a solution to help him kind of monetize what they were doing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, she was uh, like, she was already doing some of these classes, but was like clearly doing it in an inefficient way to the point where she wasn't able to fully capture the opportunity around her because she was using bad tools. And so we, we just knew that if we streamlined her workflow and gave her something that helped her scale, that it would make her life easier and then also just generate a bunch of revenue that she was leaving on the table. But like at a higher level, like if you think about that market, the fitness market, it's clear that people who used to work for big brands were dramatically under-monetized. So if you were a Barry's Bootcamp instructor who was sort of the driving force behind people showing up and, and taking class... And you were able to build an Instagram following of you know fifteen thousand people, twenty thousand people, on the back of the fitness content that you were creating and the fact that you were teaching in the studios, like you were creating much more value for the company than you were receiving, and so you could actually take this audience that you've built and like these these connections and this community, and build your own virtual fitness studio where the economics are. Are like very much more in your favor. You can teach in a you know in a Zoom room or in any kind of sort of virtual setting where you can now have fifty people, hundred people, two hundred people, a thousand people, um, and you're just physically constrained uh, in sort of the old world where you have to go into a studio. Like you can only fit thirty people in a yoga room, for example. And so the economics of the business, like one, just because you can scale it dramatically, you can reach people all over the world. But then two, like you can pair it with a business model that really accrues to your benefits. You can launch a, a membership and sell a subscription and generate you know, recurring income, uh, which is super steady and gives you a ton of freedom and really lets you kind of like bank on having this business for, for a while. And it's clear that you know, some of the world is going to go back to normal post the vaccine, you know, once you're at herd immunity. But there's a whole chunk of people who actually prefer this model of working out, doing cooking classes, consuming this kind of content, where you can do it from your home, you can do it as a quick hitter, it's priced differently. Or if you're in like a random town in America and you want to work out with a fitness instructor who's only physically located in New York City, like you would have had to have flown to New York to access that before. Whereas now you can kind of do it from the comfort of your own home. So it's sort of, it's, it is revolutionizing like how people discover and consume experiences. Um, I think the world's going to end up being a hybrid of virtual and IRL you know, in, in person. The market is just so much bigger than we ever imagined because every, every day that we spend, there's sort of a new use case. There's like someone who's getting people together for a virtual event or teaching a certain kind of class that we had never considered. And it's just clear that people are super creative. And in this new world where you can launch a virtual business and acquire customers and deliver a service that people really value, you can do it yourself and you can do it with a lot. It's still going to take a lot of hard work, but um, you can build this really meaningful, lucrative business that also fulfills like a, a passion of yours. You mentioned these new use cases. You've mentioned cooking and you've mentioned fitness. Can you dive a little deeper on some of the crazy use cases or other type of influencers or creators that are using the platform now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've seen sort of like a like a broad set of use cases in, in different areas, but it's not hard to imagine like 
many different categories that are going to be increasingly interesting. But like the ones that are are total no brainers right now, like fitness, cooking classes, meditation classes. People are launching all kinds of like business education classes for the the food bloggers specifically, just to kind of give you a, a sense. You know, there, there's people who are doing cooking classes. They're charging thirty bucks a class, and they have you know a few hundred people attending the classes. And so it's it's set up these businesses where you can earn an extra you know fifty grand, uh, two hundred fifty grand, to five hundred grand a year doing these virtual cooking classes. Uh, and before those business models were reliant on driving eyeballs to food blogs, so you could sell ads and make money through banner ads. And that's sort of a, a very lucrative way to turn revenue, but you are really reliant on SEO and search and people finding your recipes through Google. And so I think a lot of people, you know, the meta comment is that a lot of people are are seeing this this virtual business as a way to sort of supplement their income where they can still retain all the stuff that they were doing before. Um, but now they can make money on the side, like as a side hustle or as something that kind of evolves into a full-time hustle, but it complements what they're, what they're already doing. Yep. So you could have people that are doing like, you know, woodworking or, you know, how to do a painting or basically anything where people can watch a video and kind of follow along. Yeah. And then they're, they're paying for it live and you mentioned subscription, but then it also allows them to basically resell the content as like basically create their own library to where they can resell that same class again, just kind of over and over and over again. Yeah, exactly. So you can record the classes and then upload them to a video library that you can sell access to on a pay per stream basis or through a, a membership. So like, for example, if you're a fitness instructor and you teach, you know, one class format, you can record it and then put it up on demand so that someone can watch it um, later in the night or the next day or the next month when it's more convenient for them. And so what it does is it kind of creates this leverage where you're not just exchanging like time for money. Um, you also are building up a library of video assets that'll generate passive income for you like going forward. And so that's another thing is is like people are using air subs and using these new like creator driven businesses to to create passive income. Um so it sort of fits in with their life. And is it is it kind of like a WordPress deal where they can embed the technology into maybe their own website or do they set up a profile on air subs or is it a combination of both? Yeah, you can do both. And like one of our missions is is to like democratize access to really great um, virtual SaaS businesses. Like we want to make it incredibly simple to to launch a virtual SaaS business. Um, and so if you don't have a website, you can spin one up on AirSubs, you know, in less than 15 minutes. And if you do have a website, and this is sort of like a uh, an offering that's gonna supplement what you already do, you can embed it on your website and it just has all of the the tools and the infrastructure to make it a lot simpler to to do these classes. And do you create your own kind of following? Like can can do people kind of follow you or is that just through the social media that they're already on or do they are they creating their own communities and kind of know who the people are that are joining? Yeah, they they definitely are creating other communities. I mean, I think people obviously like market the classes to their existing followings um, and their existing communities, whether it's on Instagram or an email list that they've built over time. 
But we do have a bunch of, of marketing tools built into the product that'll help them grow their reach and their audience. Um, and there's people are definitely discovering them for the first time with these classes that they're teaching and the content they're creating. And I would imagine it has some type of network effect where, you know, if somebody that's joining, you know, a fitness class is also a creator, they're getting experience to how they could go, you know, start something up quickly. Like how many people, you know, now that you're what, six or seven months post-launch, how many creators are you now working with? And how many of those are people that were users or, you know, uh, customers before they became creators on the platform? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're definitely seeing um, kind of these like, I don't know if I'd describe them um, as like as like true network effects um, where like the value of the network increases with each marginal user. But there's definitely like a benefit to, to scale where as more people are teaching through AirSubs or like using AirSubs as their virtual studio and promoting their classes, like all of their peers or many of their peers who are doing something similar or want to be doing something similar, see them using a tool and they'll reach out to them and say like, Hey, what's your experience? Like, what do you like? And so what we found is like, as we've established leadership in a few categories, um, we're definitely growing faster in each one of those categories. And particularly as you get some of these larger scale creators who are earning like really substantial amounts of income, um, like all of the people who follow them and who take their classes and aspire to do something similar, like are really curious about what they're up to. Um, so we definitely see that it gets easier over time rather than harder. And most of our our growth is coming from um, from referrals and from word of mouth and from people seeing um, other individuals teaching and then wanting to do the same. Yep. Can you just maybe walk me through the tools if you sign up? I know you have different kind of levels, but what tools do you now offer to the creators besides like the access to Zoom and payments? What what other things are they getting when they sign up? Well, I think like at a high level, um, it's about making it really simple and easy to run this kind of business. And then also making it really simple and easy to monetize and grow the business. So in terms of like actually the day to day doing the business, um, we automate like the creation of Zoom links and delivery of confirmation emails and customer support. And we, you know, through our sub, you can build a beautifully designed page that's optimized for conversion and that helps you sell where you, you kind of have this home base where you can advertise your classes. And it's really simple for people to sign up for them and pay for them and, and take them. Um, and then from a, from a monetization perspective, like it's just really simple and straightforward point and click um, to to launch a membership, for example. Um, whereas if you were trying to do this yourself and trying to build this custom on your own website, you'd have to be integrating a bunch of different tools to do it. And what we found is that a lot of our customers, I mean, they're like amazing at what they do. They create this incredible energy in their community and with the classes that they're teaching and areas where... Um, where they're less focused or less comfortable are in and around like business and technology. So like if you can take those things off their plate where they don't have to worry about setting up their own website or integrating payments um, or in integrating an email tool or setting up Zoom links, they can just do their job better. They can focus on what matters, uh, which is doing a class that people really love and want to pay for. And then on, on the monetization and the growth side, like it's really hard to overemphasize like the virtue of having like a really amazing subscription business model where you have 
you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of subscribers who are paying you for something that they really enjoy. And you can kind of count on that income on a recurring basis. And then we have a bunch of tools um, that make it really simple to launch and grow those memberships. So like there's a like a membership launch best practices and then things like when people are coming to a certain amount of classes, it's really simple uh, to offer them a discount code if they've you know, if they're on the, the verge of turning or once they've been to a few classes to upsell them um, uh, a membership to, to set up recurring emails to make sure that your retention is good. It's just like a lot of little things um, that go into to running a business like this where you, it's almost like you're automating like business best practices yep. into the product. It's business in a box, basically. Are y'all, how are y'all getting inspiration for what new tool you add next? Is it is it a lot of feedback from the customers or, I mean, how are y'all kind of getting through the list of like, what's the next most important thing to offer? Yeah, I mean, this, this is like a question about like how you do product development and like there's no question that we're super close to our users. So like everything that we've built outside of like a couple things where... You know, we're looking around corners and where we think that that'll be really useful and people haven't really like articulated it yet is driven by the problems that our users are experiencing. And like particularly when, you know, when we launched the first version of the product, you know, in, in those 72 hours and we kind of hacked it together with no code, like there's no question that like there was a lot of things that like didn't work great, but it just kind of opened our eyes to like the possibility uh, of what could be if you build a spectacular product in the space. But everything that we're doing is like driven by talking to our users and understanding their problems and then like taking away roadblocks roadblocks, and then mapping it to a larger vision of like, what could this world look like if you are building the business infrastructure for the creator economy when you go from 50 million creators to 500 million creators, you know, in the next five to 10 years. Has there been anything interesting uh, that your customers have asked you to build that you just didn't even think of when you first started? Yeah, I mean, there's like you're all, you're constantly uh, like surprised with what people want, um, and you're constantly surprised with like how people are hacking your product to do something that you hadn't necessarily even like intended for them to do, but they're like they're using it to to do. And so, like one thing that was pretty amazing is we saw that creators were doing themed classes that were getting a ton of traction. So. Um, you know, they do classes around like Thanksgiving or the holidays or like some of the food bloggers are doing Valentine's Day classes and just like building the infrastructure around like letting them provide discounts for those classes or like upselling those classes to someone who's recently attended another class or, you know, offering uh, the ability to watch that on a free basis so people can kind of get a, a flavor for what class is like. Um, like those are all things that are kind of born out of what our, our users, like what our customers are, are telling us. It's really hard to think of why somebody that's making, you know, two or three grand or five grand for a fitness class would even consider going back and, and doing live classes like they were before. Like, why would they do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's sort of a spectrum. I mean, not not everyone is is like doing that kind of traffic. I think like one of the great challenges that the creator economy and the, and the businesses that operate in it that are creating you know tools for creators is to help creators scale and kind of get to product market fit um, you know faster because there are some people who aren't necessarily knocking the, the ball out of the park but if you can give them the tools to to grow this into a business that they can rely on like that's when you've made something like incredibly magical but for the people who uh, you know who are 
who the economics of their business are like much more favorable to, to what they were doing before. Like, yeah, there's no question that they're going to stick with it. You know, at least in some capacity, because it's it's just it's easier for them. Like, they don't have to travel. They're making more money, and it's theirs. And they're kind of they've caught this like entrepreneurial bug where they're building a business, and they're so you know they're so happy to be doing it. And it's just this like great sense of adventure that they're going on. And so like that's one of the things we talk about all the time is like launching entrepreneurs and like supporting them as they grow these businesses. And like we're constantly in awe of people taking the leap to build a 100% virtual business and then turning it into something amazing. So one of the fastest growing, obviously, apps, social networks is Clubhouse, um, where basically, you know, people can just join in on, I guess, what they call the dinner table conversation. But they haven't really found a way for people to kind of monetize those conversations. There's also, there's obviously a lot of uh, attention being put on it. How do you think about that? I mean, you and I have talked you know, even with this podcast on how you might be able to monetize like a live podcast. Do you think Clubhouse turns on a paywall where people can charge to be listened to? Or is that an opportunity for y'all to, you know, maybe work with Clubhouse to make those more um, something where people can earn by by chatting? Yeah, I mean, I think at, um, at a high level, Clubhouse like has the right priorities, which is how do you build a spectacular product that people love and that grows virally uh, with people inviting their friends to it. Because if you're building something in and around social, like it has to be centered around uh, an amazing product um, that's that's growing virally, like uh, of its own accord, um, without you doing any kind of paid acquisition or sort of supporting it with ad spend. And so I think they've been basically they've just nailed an amazing form factor, uh, which is audio, um, like ephemeral audio, and they've built a really simple uh, app that brings amazing people together. And they've been really thoughtful about like how they grow the network and like how they created you know some FOMO around the launch and you know how they've they've partnered with their lead investor um, to have like really amazing people leading conversations that are a great hook to bring people into the app. And so I think they've done the right thing, which is being super focused on uh, on the product and letting that speak for itself uh, and just like really nailing the the user experience and that's driven a ton of their growth. And then, you know, historically with with a lot of these social apps you've seen like basically build the network and then figure out how to monetize it later. And and I think that has that's created some issues for for larger scale networks um, where they end up choosing a business model that isn't necessarily like perfectly aligned with the user. Um, so for example, you know, Facebook, right? So if they're really optimizing for people spending time on the app, eyeballs, engagement, and they're monetizing it through an ad-driven business model, they're definitely incentivized to have you spend way more time on the app. And so, you know, I think I think Clubhouse and a lot of sort of the the new age social products um, that aren't going to look and feel like things that we've experienced previously with like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter actually have a lot to learn from products in China, which actually monetize through a bunch of different ways. Um, and so it's not just usually one business model in Chinese consumer social apps um, that win. It's a lot of different things. It's like payments, it's tipping, um, it's some ads, it's products. And it's... You know, I think they have a bunch of different directions they could go um, to monetize, but but I think uh, they're clearly thinking about it. I think I read some some article recently um, that they're going to experiment with 
you know, paywalls, ticketing, subscriptions to figure out a way to monetize. But you know, I also think as you have users of an app paying for something directly themselves, where it's not being monetized through like, through another customer, you know, they're getting the direct value that they pay for. And that, in my experience, tends to be better aligned with with the user where they're not the product. Yep. I love it. Okay, so you're eight months, uh, I keep keep saying eight, nine months, 10 months into air subs. You know, you've been super capital efficient. Your latest update, I think you have three full-time people. Is is that the only three people that work on the business or do you have kind of freelance people or contract people that are also working? Are you been able to do this with three people? Yeah, the the whole team is is five people. Um, three are full time, and then two are are contract. So we're definitely we're definitely lean and mean, and uh, it's amazing what you can get done with with a small number of people. And like, if you look at, I, I think there was some crazy stat, which was that like Instagram had like thirteen people working there when they when they sold to Facebook. And if you look at the number of people who are who are working at at Clubhouse right now, like you can get a ton done with with a small group of people. Who have a, a big bold vision and like work hard and as a team towards achieving that vision. So is it kind of fair to say that you've found a product market fit with this new business air subs? Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think there's a bunch of different definitions of of product market fit, but there's like there's no question um, that we're seeing like how this is just solving a really painful experience that a lot of people are going through. And you can kind of tell, I mean, there's there's stories about when you've hit product market fit, like when you know that it's just solving a problem for people. Um, and so what we've seen is like, you know, creators who are, when they set up airsubs for the first time, like we've had a few people like literally start crying because they say, this is going to make my life so much easier. Like I was doing all this stuff manually before. And like, I was so intimidated about setting up a website and I don't know how to use all of these different tools. And they're like worried about, you know, how to set up, um, set up this business, and it's already like a really tough, scary time when you've been laid off from from your job, and you're working on something that's like the sole source of income, or at least a big part of your income. And so, like we, you know, we're still early on in our journey, um, but we're growing quickly, and we're really excited about what's going to happen next. I love it, and that's that's kind of my next question: is the VC world is hot. People are raising money and, you know, COVID has created these huge opportunities. Like, how are you thinking about going forward? You've raised, you know, relatively minimal amount of money. Like, how do you think about the next couple of years or do you know yet? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're uh, we're constantly like evaluating whether we should raise capital or not. And it definitely is sort of a, a crazy market. I think what, what we've seen at least uh, during the pandemic is that, there's like fewer companies that that are raising and the ones that are raising are doing it at like crazy valuations and raising tons of money. And so yeah, we're I mean we're constantly thinking about whether uh, whether we'd go raise and like whether it's the right the right time to to go win the market. And we are in a good spot I and mean, we have a bunch of uh, of runway but we're constantly thinking about that. Yep. And you're unique in that you have this, you know, business that's starting to flourish. You also have Voro, which has by no means been shut down. Kind of how are you thinking about that? Will Voro continue to kind of grow organically? Will you shut it down? Or, you know, how, how will you kind of think about running two companies? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of funny that that business has, has bounced back 
you know, and there's tens of thousands of people who use it every month to research doctors and find them. Um, and so it is kind of like funny where we we haven't paid as much attention to it because we've been laser focused on air subs now that we we pivoted and and that the business has bounced back. But we kind of view it through the lens of of optionality at this point where we don't want to focus on two things at once. We just want to divert all of our attention and we're laser focused on on air subs, but obviously like the Vora mission is, is very near and dear to our heart um, and we care a lot about it, but we kind of see that more through the lens of, of optionality and we're going to continue to let it grow. Is the team that you're working with, are they fully remote or uh, are y'all all in New York and work together in an office or how are y'all distributed? Yeah, we're fully remote and there's, you know, people all around the world. So, um, you know, we have like three people here in the U.S. and then three other people around the world. And are you, is there any need to, are you thinking there's any need to hire anytime soon or you can kind of keep with the same team for the next leg of growth? No, I mean, I, I think we're we're constantly thinking about, about growing the team. Like, again, I think our view is like you want to be, um, you want to be super nimble and small and fast, but there, there's no question that, you know, at some point we're going to consider growing the team. And you mentioned uh, Mike Maples, who's, you know, a prolific VC, has been involved in some of the biggest companies of our kind of time. And maybe not just speaking to him, but you have a lot of great investors in your kind of cap table. Is there anything you would say on, you know, what a great investor or what, if we want to talk about Mike, has done for the business? Um that, that maybe you just weren't expecting out of an investor? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think just generally uh, what we look for in investors are, you know, people who have a high degree of conviction and like believe in the vision. And I think that sort of lends itself to people who are, who are independent thinkers um, and who aren't, who are going to behave like really well when things aren't going great. And I know, um, you know, I mentioned that that Abe Shafty was was on your podcast recently. I think he said like the exact same thing about Mike um, on on that podcast, which is like what you really want to know is like how people react when 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 things aren't going great. Um, and so we look for like independent thinkers who have a high degree of conviction, are on board with the mission, and are just really good people who will stick with you and, and kind of bring a diverse array of perspectives to to bear. Yep. All right. Um, have some personal questions if you don't mind getting personal for a second. Yeah, let's do it. I loved just how we started with a family from Venezuela, Argentina, and Cuba. Um, my question is, is there like a childhood experience or something that you remember vividly that kind of shaped or sent you on a different trajectory in life that happened kind of early on? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think less so maybe a, a singular event and like rather like a person. So I think like someone who, who I've always admired is my grandfather. And like really what he taught me is to like fight for what you believe in. So like my grandfather uh, and my mom and all of her siblings fled Cuba right around the time of the, the Cuban revolution. And um, my grandfather like believed so strongly like in, in the virtue of democracy and how Cuba should be a democracy that he went and did something crazy, which is he fought in the Bay of Pigs and they, you know, they landed on, on Cuba and tried to, to take the country back, um, from Fidel Castro. And after he was, um, after they lost and he was thrown in, in political prison, um, Castro kind of did this like sham trial where he brought all of the political prisoners, um, into a, a stadium in, in Cuba, 
And he tried to force them to recant in front of a microphone, in front of thousands of people in the stadium. And then it was publicly televised all around the country. And when my grandfather went up to the microphone and they, they told him to recant, um, he said no, and that he believed in in freedom of the press and freedom of the people, um, and that he would never like subscribe to um, the country that they were building, like even at the risk of of his own life. And so it kind of like taught me that that you got to fight for what you believe in because it matters, and even when it's not not easy to do that. Um, and so I think that's like someone who who sort of changed the way that I think about things. That's something that kind of jumped to mind when when you asked. That gives me chills, dude. Uh, wow, I've asked that question a few times. That gives me me chills. Uh, can you say at all what happened after that? Yeah. So he, um, well, he. So they threw him back um, in political prison, and eventually, his family, my family, was able to to ransom him back to um, back to the U.S. You know, and he made it back, but I think that that stuck with him. I grew up with him in my life um, when I was younger, and at, at some point he he passed away. But um, he was sort of this like huge figure in our family because he just was this amazing person. Um, and so I was, you know, while that was like a really difficult time for for the family, like he was able to be a part of all of our lives after that. And so it ended up like that where he came back. Dude, I love it. Thanks for sharing that. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice that I got was to take a risk and leave something secure. Um, so basically, I, I had when we left to to quit our jobs and start Voro. Um, it is sort of this like moment in time where it feels like a huge risk, and it feels like a like a really momentous decision. But in retrospect, it's like the best decision that that I ever made. And so, like all the people who had done something similar and said, like, just go do it. You're going to be, you know, if, if you want to go do it, like, go do it. If you feel drawn to it, go do it. Like that's sort of the the best advice that I, that I've gotten. Yep. What's the best book you've ever read business or personal? Wow. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to boil that down to, to one book. Um, I, I tend to like really love biographies and, and memoirs and like, there's a few that stand out. Um, I love, uh, it's, it's sort of cliche, but the book on Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow and honestly, like anything written by Ron Chernow is, is awesome. Um, there's an incredible book about the, the Wright brothers. And then there's more like memoir style books that kind of like a, a great reminder of like being, being grateful, um, that, that you're alive when breath becomes air. Um, Barbarian Days is another great one. And then I, I grew up reading like a, a lot of fiction and, and there's some some really great literature out there. Like A River Runs Through It is like one of my other favorite books. Yep. All right. What's the best way for people to reach you or Air Subs? You can hit me up on on Twitter, on Instagram, um, at Homas Toyos, or you can uh, send me an email um, to Moss at Air Subs. I love it. All right, buddy. I'll be in touch. Have a good one. Thank you again. All right. Have a great one. Talk Bye. to you soon. Bye. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. 
All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.